this last um, teaching that I want to do here at the Soul Care Conference is on deliverance. Um, you know, I, I obviously grew up here in the States, and again, I was in a conservative evangelical upbringing, and, you know, we didn't really talk about deliverance, um, or, you know, uh, whatever words you want to use for it, casting out demons, exorcism, all that kind of stuff, but just, we didn't, um, never really spoke of it at all and you know the only time I ever heard anything about it was either you know once in a while you'd have a pastor preach on a passage from the Gospels where somebody did a deliverance usually Jesus sometimes you know you'd find something there on one of the disciples doing deliverance in the book of Acts or whatever but um, you'd see that um, once in a while <clears throat> other than that you'd have a missionary that maybe would come to town and when a missionary came to town you know from some place in the world that practiced a lot of other religious practices, you'd hear a story once in a while, maybe once or twice in my childhood. I can remember this kind of thing where somebody comes in from an exotic land like Thailand or Africa or Omaha. <laughs> And they did a deliverance, you know. Could you do me a favor and hand me that? Just throw it to me, I'll catch it. If not, it'll just bounce. Thanks. Um, and so, you know, you, you sort of, as a kid, listen to these kinds of stories, you know, kind of wide-eyed, like, whoa, you know. But your worldview mostly is not actually as much as you think it is. It's not usually thought through carefully. Most of the times your worldview is just assimilated from things that you learn from people around you and from your experiences. It's how you derive it. And if I were to be able to articulate my worldview in those days, I would have said, demons live in Africa and Thailand and Omaha. <laughs> but apparently they don't live in New York because I never see anybody getting cleaned up and delivered and so that's kind of how your worldview is formed. And if we're honest, which we should be, our Western worldview has messed up our capacity to read the Bible accurately. It's hurt us a lot. And that was true for me growing up. So I have no experience, concept, theological insight into any of this kind of stuff that I'm going to talk about growing up. It just wasn't part of my life. <clears throat> when I was 19, I surrendered my life to Christ, felt a call on my life, and when I did, you know, I started moving towards ministry. When I was in seminary, I was at Alliance Theological Seminary, and I was one day dating myself on a payphone. They hardly exist anymore. And um, I was chatting actually with Jen, who at that time was my fiance, and I was sitting on a pay phone, and there was this kid pacing in front of the phone. And I said to Jen, some kid's way to use the phone. Back then, the seminary that I was at, and there was a college, we all 
lived together. I was in the, I was single, so I was in the dorm with the college kids. The seminary had their own floor, so I didn't know lots of college kids. And I just figured it was one of the college kids way to use the phone. So I said to Jen, I gotta, I gotta go. So I hung up and I said to the kid, phone's available. And he looked at me, he goes, actually, I was waiting to talk to you. I said, oh, okay. So I don't know him, so what do I know? I just sit down next to him on a seat there that was near the phone. And he starts telling me about his life. And I'm telling you, I'm three minutes into a conversation with a kid I've never had a conversation with. And I have a thought that I've never had before in my life. This kid has demons. Now, the reason why I thought it were three things. First, I mean, the very first thing he told me was he was hearing voices and the voices were telling him to kill his father. I don't know. That seemed dark to me. <laughs> Second thing, um, <clears throat> he was so confused. And, you know, I mean, it could have been mental illness. And at that point, admittedly in my life, I had zero experience with that kind of stuff, right? But... It just didn't feel like mental illness. It felt demonic. It felt like demonic confusion. And remember, the scripture says that Satan is the author of confusion. And there was clear confusion. And then the third thing was, periodically, in the middle of this conversation, he would just lean his head to the side, twitch, manifest, and growl. Just, I don't know, that seemed dark to me. <laughs> I mentioned to you yesterday, you know, our last, I guess it was the night before, whatever, the days blend together, that I have discernment. Not everyone gets that gift, but this seemed pretty demonic to me. I think most people, if they would have realized it was demonic, would have done everything they could to extricate themselves from the situation and run for the hills. But I actually believe what I'm about to tell you. I think your next level with God lies beyond the boundary of your current experience. And the only way you can get there is to risk more than you're comfortable with. If you do what you can already do, you will never see what God can do. If you want to see what God can do, you've got to get out in the places where you can't do it. That's the only way to see God move, friends. The Bible calls that little risky step faith. That's what real faith looks like. So I took a risky step and looked at this kid. His name was Rich. And I said to him, Rich, have you ever considered that your problems could be spiritual in nature? He goes, you think I have demons, don't you? I said, I'm absolutely convinced of it. And I've never thought it of anyone else in my life. He goes, yeah, he goes, John Ellenberger told me I had demons, but I didn't believe him. Anybody know who John is? John and Helen Ellenberger? A couple of you. John was a missionary with the Christian Missionary Alliance with his wife, Helen. They are two of the most beautiful souls I have ever come across. Authentic humility, uh, just godly people. And uh, John was part of the missionary team that the Christian Missionary Alliance sent into Irianjaya back in the day, and they reached a tribe of people known as the Doni people. The entire tribe, over 6,000 of them, gave their life to Christ as an entire community. And they walked across the line of faith together. 
But these people were pagan worshipers. So John told me that they would have fire ceremonies and that the demons they were worshiping would physically come out of the fire and appear to them. So when they did deliverance, when they led this tribe to Christ, they had to do deliverance on this tribe of people because they were deeply demonized. So at this point in my life, when I was 20 at the time, 23, 24 years old, John had more experience in deliverance than anyone I knew. I just looked at Rich, I said to him, listen, if John Ellenberger says you have demons, you have demons. And I said, if you're willing, I'll ask John to lead a session with you. He had already offered to the kid. And I'll join and be part of your team like as support. I'll pray and just be there to support you. He's like, all right. So I go in to see John the next day. I mean, what do I know? This is my first rodeo, right? So I go in to see John the next day and I say, hey, Dr. John, I met some guy that you know. His name is Rich. And and I tell him his name, and I said, he's ready for deliverance. And John takes off his glasses, looks up at the ceiling in utter ex exasperation. He goes, oh, that's the worst case of demons I've ever seen. Okay, so just work with me for a second. The first case of demons I ever noticed was the worst case of demons the guy with the most experience I knew had ever seen. So if you start this topic today and go, I'm not real familiar with this. That's where I began. So there's hope for you. <laughs> we um, attempted to get some demons out of that guy. I didn't get any demons out of him because of a thing called ground. We've been talking about this principle of access. If you're unwilling to repent, demons do not have to leave. It's a legal system. God is a judge and a legislator. And he creates laws in the universe. And if you don't abide by them, there are consequences to the laws. And demons take advantage of it. They are the greatest legalists ever known to humanity. They love legalism. And so, as a result, they abide by the laws in that sense. And so, he wouldn't repent. They didn't have to leave. Never saw any demons come out. I go on into ministry. That's my only experience in deliverance. I'm on my first week on the job as a young pastor, 25 years old at this point, full-time ministry, woman walks into my office. She's struggling with depression, anxiety, panic attacks, suicide ideation, all this kind of symptomatic stuff. Uh, I'm listening to her and I just said to her, tell me your story again one more time. You tell me your symptoms, I'll tell you it's connected to your story. And within a few questions, I'll be able to get to your story, man, and figure out why this is going on. And so I listened to her story. Her mother was a voodoo priestess. She was a voodoo practitioner before she had come to faith in Christ. She's hearing voices. The voices are blasphemous and telling her to kill herself. This is absolutely 100% demonic. It is ringing all my bells. And I look at her and I just, again, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm willing to take a risk. If nothing else, I do not lack courage in life. And so I look at her and I say to her, Indy, have you ever considered that this problem you're having could be demonic? She looks at me and goes, you think I have demons, don't you? I said, I absolutely do. And she goes, yeah, I do too. I used to worship them. I know what they sound like. I'm like, oh, well, would you like to get rid of them? She goes, well, yeah, that would be great. And I'm brand new. 
right? So I'm like, oh my gosh. Well, let me go get the senior pastor. Remember him yesterday? You know where this is going, right? By the way, if I didn't say yesterday, let me say it today. If you lack courage, don't be a pastor. It's a matter of fact, let me say it a little differently. If you lack courage, you're not following Jesus. Because Jesus is calling you places that require courage. You got to deal with the fear issues in your life or you won't follow. And uh, I go down the hall to see the senior pastor. I said to the senior pastor, pastor, I said, you know, this woman has come in. I say her name. I said, listen, she's clearly got demonic stuff. Her mother's a voodoo priestess. She's a voodoo practitioner. She's hearing voices telling her to harm herself, blasphemous. I said, she needs deliverance. And I mean, I figured this guy, he's got to have experience. He was as old as dirt. He was my age now. Back then, it felt old, you know? And I look at him and I go, you know, uh, you know, we need to do deliverance. He goes, oh, oh, I've never done deliverance. I go, well, I'm on my first week on the job. He goes, well, if you lead, I'll pray with you. So I dove in. You know what I knew? Two things. Number one, Jesus doesn't want people to have demons. Jesus is smarter than me, and he figured people should have demons cast out. He hasn't changed. Last I checked my Bible, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Second thing I know that helped me, I didn't get a junior Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that indwells the living Christ lives in you. I figured that was sufficient. So I dove in. Fortunately, I'd seen John attempt a deliverance, so I had a methodology. And I started in. I call, you know, make a series of commands to make sure the demons aren't doing anything nasty. And then I call the spirit to attention and do a test. And then, you know, a demon, sure enough, pops up and I get its name. And then I go for the leader because that helps you to kind of go up the hierarchy. And I ask the thing if there's any ground. There's no ground. I tell it to John did this. So I follow John's lead. Go to the pit. Thing goes. I get the next one and the next one. I'm six up, six down, seventh one. Get its name. Ask if he has a leader. Doesn't have a leader. Ask if he has any ground. Doesn't have any ground. I tell it to go to the pit. It goes, no. I'm like, you can't tell me no. He goes, yes, I can. I'm like, no, you can't. He's like, yes, I can. I'm like, oh, crap. I'm in such trouble. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm a mere child at this point. And I am just lost as any ship at sea, you know, without an utter rudder. And I'm sitting there, and I only thing I know is I know Jesus knows. So I pause, and I wait on the Lord. I'm like, what's going on? He goes, he doesn't have to leave. I'm like, why? He's a shared spirit. I said, pretend I'm brand new at this, and I have no idea what that means. <laughs> it's shared with another person. I'm like, is that legal? Yes. Okay, well, it's your universe. You get to make up the rules. So what do I do? He said, you're trying to send it to the pit. It doesn't have to go there. It's got a place it can go. Just tell it to go where I send it. 
I literally, 30 seconds, I look up from this thing and go, go where Jesus sends you. Boom, it leaves. We pray with the girl, she walks out, and as she's leaving the building, the phone rings. It's her mother, the voodoo priestess. That spirit went right from her to her mother, because it had residence rights there. And her mother, who had never called the church before and never called the church again after, in that moment when that spirit came to her, she said, is my daughter with you right now? And I went, do, 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 do. We just entered a very strange world. That was my initial experience in deliverance ministry. Since then, I've done well over 10,000 deliverances. It's not an exaggeration. It's because I keep doing stuff like this with people like you in Omaha. <laughs> So, uh, what I want to talk about in the next, you know, hour and a half or whatever here, is I want to talk a little bit about deliverance ministry and some of the stuff that I've learned. Um, <clears throat> listen, I want to spend a little bit of time talking with you about worldview, because worldview is a big deal, and it's kind of messed us up, as I said earlier. So we're going to talk a little bit about our American worldview some, and we're also going to talk a little bit about the biblical worldview. We're going to talk about some really, really important questions like how do demons come in and how do they get out and all those kinds of things. But let me just start with worldview. Let's start with the a little bit of the shifting that is taking place in our culture, which is really phenomenal and interesting. Do you know that in 1990, George Barnett did a survey and he asked people about their beliefs, spiritual beliefs. And so he asked essentially two questions. One was, how many people that he was interviewing, did you believe in, uh, in, um, in, in Satan as an actual being, supernatural, dark being? Back in 1990, somewhere about just slightly under 50% of Americans believed in Satan. Spin the clock ahead, 2020, 30 years later, Barnett does a follow-up survey to see the trends in America, are things shifting? And what he discovered in 1990 from 30 years later in 2020 was that now 68% of Americans believed in sin. That is a giant change. We had a huge increase in the amount of Americans believed in Satan. That, that's got to make you pause and go, what is going on? Same time, by the way, we've had an increase in the number of people that believe in Satan. We actually have a decrease in the number of people that believe in God. Hmm. We've lost about 10% of the people that believed in God and gained 18% of the people that believed in Satan. Why? What is happening? Now, I said, do you want to contrast biblical worldview with American worldview? Let's just move to the biblical worldview for a second. And as we juxtaposition these two things for a few minutes here this morning. And um, I just got to make it really clear that Jesus believed in Satan. And Jesus is smarter than you and me. And Jesus did deliverance ministry. As a matter of fact, deliverance ministry, exorcism, casting out demons, is kingdom normal. It's absolutely normal to the kingdom of God. One third of the miracle stories in the New Testament are deliverance stories. 
Everywhere Jesus goes, there are two signs of his message of the kingdom of God. He casts out demons and heals the sick. Those are the two signs of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom, by the way, the kingdom of God, if I can simplify it, is the reversal of everything that went wrong when sin entered the world. To put it in a positive way, it is the restoration of the way things were intended to be before sin entered the world. So part of Jesus' restoring ministry is casting out demons and healing the sick. Why? Because before sin entered the world, there were no demonized people. There were no sick people. When you get to heaven, there will be no demonized people. And there will be no sick people. That is only part of sinful existence. So when the kingdom is proclaimed, announced, and arrives in our midst, demons are cast out and sick people are cured. That's part of the arrival of the kingdom. That is kingdom normal. Okay, please hear this. When the church stops doing the ministry of Jesus, it is abnormal to its king. Jesus, I will say it one more time, has not changed. The world view has changed. There are some problems that are physical problems and people need a physical solution. There are other problems who are miracle. There are other problems that are emotional problems, soulish issues. They may need therapy, counseling. They may need medication. A lot of times they need soul care. That's what they need. I don't care if they use my stuff, but that's it, man. They've got soulish issues connected to living out of alignment with Jesus. When you get in alignment, your soul experiences love, joy, and peace. When you're out of alignment, you don't get that. And sometimes they need soul care to get back in alignment. But I got to tell you, there are other issues that are demonic. Jesus wasn't a country bumpkin who couldn't figure out the difference between a psychological problem and a demonic problem. The only reason Jesus Christ did deliverance ministry is because he's the all-wise, all-knowing son of God who understood that there were demons in the world, and if he didn't cast them out, people would be left without love, joy, and peace, but in bondage. That's why Jesus did this ministry. Listen, I've got to tell you, I read modern commentators, really smart people, much smarter than me, really well-educated people. They're educated in places like Oxford and Harvard and all kinds of things. And they write in their commentaries things like this. In the first century, they really didn't understand about psychological problems. And these weren't really demons that they were casting out. They were just psychological problems. And they didn't understand. Can I just put it on pause for a second? When you're so smart, you think you're smarter than Jesus? You're a fool. And I'm not here to pick on those people. I'm just telling you, your worldview is tilted. And Jesus' worldview is straight. And you've got to recognize that there's something off when we think like this. Are you tracking with me? Even if you're not. It's true. My philosophy of ministry is really simple. I just think we should do the stuff Jesus did. You know why I think that? Because he told me I should it's called the Great Commission. 
In the Great Commission, Jesus said to his disciples, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Matthew chapter 10, he sends the disciples out, gives them authority, tells them to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and commands them to cast out demons and heal the sick. I would argue it's disobedience to the Great Commission not to do deliverance ministry in churches. I don't know how I get around it. I'm just following the logic of Jesus. So let's talk about this changing worldview that we're in and why we have gotten so far from these normal activities of Jesus. Let me illustrate modernism and the shift that's taking place. It's a really intriguing time to live. It's amazing. So the easiest way for me to illustrate this worldview shift is with what I call Scooby-Doo theory. How many of you ever grew up and watched a Scooby-Doo cartoon? Look at you. How many of you have no idea who Scooby-Doo is? Anybody? Nobody? Everybody got it? One person. Really? You don't know who Scooby-Doo is, Elmer? God have mercy on your soul, my brother. God have mercy on your soul. He's all my I have an assignment for you. Go home and watch on YouTube Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Okay? It's your assignment. Uh, Elmer, uh, just me and you. Everybody else doesn't have to listen. Scooby-Doo is a cartoon, okay? Scooby-Doo is a dog. He's got a bunch of teenage friends who are his owners. And they are actually trying to resolve mysteries. That's the gist of this thing. But all the mysteries are like supernatural, right? There's always a ghost. The original cartoon, by the way, the reason this illustrates worldview shift is because Scooby-Doo is the longest running TV show in the history of TV. True story. I'm educating you. <laughs> the original Scooby-Doo's came out. Scooby-Doo, where are you? That was the originals. 1968. I was a mere lad, three years old. The original Scooby-Doo, where are you cartoons always went the same way. By the way, there is still Scooby-Doo running today on an HBO syndicated channel. I don't know what it is. But the reality is here we are all these years later and Scooby-Doo is still playing. Okay, 53 or 55 years later. And so the original Scooby-Doo's went like this. There was a ghost at the beginning of the cartoon. 22 and a half minutes later, the gang would discover that the ghost wasn't really a ghost. It was just a bad guy dressed up like a ghost. And they would unmask the villain and solve the mystery. Please hear me. That wasn't innocuous. While a bit entertaining, I have to admit that Scooby-Doo was my favorite cartoon growing up. They were teaching you a worldview. That's modernism. Behind every apparent supernatural phenomenon is a natural explanation. That is because the supernatural realm in, in a uh, modern worldview is at best suspect and most likely not real. If it is real, you can't really interact with it. That was modernism's teaching. Please hear me. You've been baptized into the waters of modernism. One of the reasons why Americans are so blind to biblical realities sometimes is because of this modernistic thinking that we were baptized in. But ah, we are no longer the America I grew up in. 1990-something, early 90s, 93, 4, somewhere in there, I went to a friend's house. 
our wives went out, I think, together someplace. It was just the two of us sitting around chatting, having a cup of coffee, eating a piece of cake, and he had a little boy, and the little boy was bored with adult conversation. He wanders off into the living room, pops on the TV, and I hear Scooby-Doo. Well, I was a little bored with adult conversation myself, and the truth is, I like Scooby-Doo. So I picked up my coffee and my cake and did a very acceptable thing, and that is watch TV with a kid. And I sat down, and I got my coffee, and I got my cake, and I'm watching Scooby. There's a ghost. There's always a ghost. It's Scooby-Doo. But this time, at the end of the cartoon, the ghost was still a ghost. And I went, rub, rub. <laughs> Someone has just taught a new generation of children that behind an apparent supernatural being is an actual supernatural entity. Oh, that isn't the world I grew up in. Around the same time, there was a little book series came out. You might have heard of it. It was called Harry Potter. Sold more books in the history of book sales than any other book series. It's a very supernatural worldview. Christians are far too often known for what they stand against rather than who they stand for. Don't be one of them. Be known who you stand for, not what you stand against. I'm not here to hammer Harry Potter. I don't care. I'm here to talk about worldview. What I'm telling you about Harry Potter is a very supernatural worldview that I was not exposed to, and that the supernatural and the natural worlds can interact. That wasn't what I was taught. As a result of the shift in worldview after Harry Potter came out, which targeted 16 to 24 year olds, the fastest growing religion among 16 to 24 year olds was Wiccan, which is a combination of witchcraft and paganology. It outstripped every other religious category of growth by over 1,000 percentage points of growth rate. Why? Because you just taught a new generation that they could interact with the supernatural. And sadly, too often in the church, we had substituted learned behaviors for authentic encounters. And these kids, even the ones that were growing up in church, went, well, this is real and this is just religion. And they went for this one that they could see something happening. And they were intrigued. Listen, I just want to help you understand how far this has come. You just need to know this ain't the America you grew up in. I, I'm an audiobook fan. I'm going to just tell you a couple of stories real fast to tell you how fast this thing's come and how far this thing's come. I'm an audiobook guy. I listen to audiobooks. I do 200 books a year, many of them through Audible. That is because I travel all the time. Might as well redeem the time. I'm in cars, walking through airports, etc., etc. I said to Jen this week, I have no idea how much time I spent in airports or on airplanes, but it is a sickly number of days every year. And so I listen to audiobooks. So every day, I look at the new audiobook categories. And I'm just looking real fast through those. I looked at it this morning. Just looking real fast at the new books that come out, marking up ones I want so I can put it on a wish list. And that way I don't have to go looking for stuff when I want something new. Ten years ago, I had never even heard of certain ancient religious practices. Like, for example, Kundalini. 
It's an ancient religious practice, pagan religious practice. It's a form of witchcraft. Never heard of it 10 years ago. Today, every single month on Audible, there are new books on Kundalini. There is a revival of Kundalini taking place in our country. Oh, this is not the America I grew up in. Every month there are books on witchcraft, how to cast spells, how to have encounters with spirits, how to pick up spirit guides, all this kind of stuff. Listen, 10 years ago, none of this stuff was on Audible. Now, every single month, it is floating through my Audible thing. This is a wide, different world. Let me tell you how far this has come. And I want to say something because I'm talking to Christians, so I have to say this. You ready? This stuff does not make me fearful. I think we're sitting at an incredible opportunity. I'll come back to that later. But let me, let me just say a couple of ways this thing has traveled. The town that I was a part of in um, Massachusetts was a very, very educated town. In case you don't know, Massachusetts is the most educated state in the Union 10 years running. Super educated place, right? We've got all these big colleges. You know, you got BU, BC, obviously Harvard, you know, Northeastern, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Super saturated, educated place. Where I was on the south shore of Boston, the town I was in, 80 to 85% of the people in the town would have had college degrees. Many of them beyond that would have had master's degrees, doctorate degrees like myself, etc. right? In the town that I was in, super educated, no hick space. This is really educated, okay? There were three full-time churches, Catholic church, Protestant church, and one of them was charismatic, one of them was more evangelical. Three full-time churches and two full-time mediums. One of the full-time mediums had her own Disney reality TV show and also had a New York Times best-selling book called The Medium Next Door. Pause for a second. Soul Care has now sold about 120,000 copies. I have never once been on the New York Times bestseller list. This lady was on the New York Times bestseller list in spirituality for The Medium Next Door. I just want to ask, how many books did she sell? This lady used to go to auditoriums, sell out crowds, sometimes as large as 700 people for like 50 bucks a ticket, and stand on a platform and give prophetic words to the audience. She was not a charlatan, she is a medium. She was tapping into supernatural power, and she was given authentic but dark side, prophetic insight. Now I told you that to tell you this. Hold on to your hats. That lady went to our public high school seven times and gave prophetic words to the entire student body. Hey, that's not the America I grew up in. I went to the principal of our high school in our very educated town and said to her, never thought I'd have to pull this out of my bag of tricks. That is a violation of the separation of church and state. To which she said, this isn't spiritual. I said, would you like to Google medium with me? Went over her head to the superintendent. Superintendent put a stop to it. 
I moved out in 2017, and she was back in the high school in the fall of 2017. Oh, not the world I grew up in. Let me tell you another story. My dad has AML, it's acute myeloid leukemia. It's a nasty form of leukemia. Where my dad was, <clears throat> again, he, they, my mom and dad moved out there near us in the South Shore of Boston. And, you know, Dana-Farber is one of the leading cancer institutes in the United States up there with the Mayo Clinic. This is where they train all the Harvard-trained oncologists. Harvard, okay? Just set the record straight. Do you know that every single college just about has an accreditation body that gives them some sort of kudos, accrediting uh, credits, so that they have some legitimacy, right? So our institution, Alliance Theological Seminary and AU Alliance University, formerly NIAC, just closed in August because we lost our accreditation because of finances. Harvard, and we couldn't sustain existence without accreditation. You can't get government loans for your students without accreditation. Harvard is a non-accredited institution. The reason Harvard is a non-accredited institution is because they look at you and go, we're Harvard, good luck. And that is kind of their attitude. Harvard is, you know, it's a, a unique place, man. You go to Harvard and there's people from all countries, all people. It's like going to the UN. It's just incredibly diverse. Every country in the world, the elite from every country in the world come to Harvard, okay? Why am I setting this up? Because every nurse, every doctor, every medical practitioner, every hospital administrator that came into my dad's room while he was there for six weeks offered him Reiki as part of his holistic medical treatment. For those of you who do not know, Reiki is a Japanese word which has to do with spiritual power for healing, of which I will tell you there are exactly two sources of spiritual power for healing, Jesus and demonic. And I'm just telling you, this ain't Jesus. Now just pause for a second. They don't call it, by the way, spiritual power, even though that's the root of the Japanese word. They just call it energy. I have no doubt it's energy. My question is, where's that energy coming from? It's a spiritual energy. Now just pause for a second. This is Harvard. Do you realize the implication of what I just said? There are people coming from every country on the planet, and they are being taught a holistic medical system that includes Reiki as part of their medical treatment. Man, this isn't the Harvard that I knew. This isn't the world that I knew. This is a radically different planet that we're on. Now, I said to you before, this doesn't alarm me. As a matter of fact, I think this may be one of the single greatest opportunities that has ever faced the church in church history. Do you know why? Because when someone is demonized, and all this exploration is going to lead to far more demonization, when someone is demonized, there is exactly one solution in the world for a demonized person, and that is demons being cast out in the name of Jesus Christ, which means the church holds the only key that can solve the problems that are being created by this new exploration. This is a golden opportunity for the church if we get back to the ministry of Jesus. 
That's the world we're at. Listen, I got one more story to tell you just because it's so powerful. I could tell you stories all day long on this stuff, but just one more. In a conference I did in Breckenridge, Colorado a year ago, maybe two, I can't remember, it was a year or two, a woman came to the conference who had a million followers on Instagram. She was a yogi master. She's practicing yoga with all, not just the exercise, all of the chanting, a religious activity. Just the exercise, not religious. But when you start moving into the spiritual practices of meditation and chanting, you are moving into dark stuff. She was that. She's a yogi master, okay? She comes to the conference, Soul Care in Breckenridge. We lead her to faith in Christ. I end up doing her deliverance because she's got a ton of these yogi spirits and dark spirits and all this. We kick out the spirits. When I finish her deliverance, she starts weeping as the Holy Spirit speaks to her. And she says to me, I have been leading people astray. And I took her by the hand and I said to her, yes, but now you can lead people into the light. She just shot me a note. She was doing a conference in China for 100,000 Chinese people and shared her testimony. I'm telling you, we are sitting on an opportunity if the church can start acting like the church of Jesus Christ and stop being abnormal to Jesus Ministries. All right, I've said enough on that. <laughs> Let's talk about spirits from a biblical perspective. That's the worldview shift that we're undergoing. Let's talk the Bible for a bit. So first, um, listen, Satan, for example, is a Hebrew word. So Satan doesn't appear in Jesus' ministry. Satan appears in the Old Testament. By name, the word Satan is actually Hebrew. Ha, Satana, the accuser. The Satana part is accuser. That's what it is, okay? And the first time that name, Satan, appears by name in the Old Testament is actually in Chronicles. Yeah, so the garden incident in Adam and Eve's story is not the word Satan, it's serpent, right? But by name, he first appears in the book of Chronicles. When he appears in the book of Chronicles, what you discover is that he's trying to tempt King David to take a census, which he was forbidden to do. So he's trying to stir up trouble for David and the Israelites. That's what Satan does. He tempts, he accuses, he creates problems. He wants to create access points in our lives. That's what he's doing. Also, all through the Old Testament, you are running into demons. Though they're not using the word demons, you're running into ancient deities. Deities of all these other nations, foreign gods, people like Dagon, God of the Philistines, and Moloch, and Chemosh, and on and on. You see all these ancient deities. They're demonic beings. That's what they are. And that's why God keeps calling his people not to participate in all these ancient practices of these other religions because they are worshiping demons. And he is trying to get his people to be a pure people who worship only the true God. And that's what you see happening in the Old Testament. But you never see deliverance happen in the Old Testament. There's no deliverance taking place. Deliverance ministry in the Bible first occurs in the ministry of Jesus. 
However, in history, it occurs before that. In history, deliverance ministry begins in the intertestamental period. That is, after the Old Testament was completed, before the New Testament was written. In that block of time, there are Jewish exorcists that appear in history, and the deliverances are being done by Jewish people, and they're using probably, and I will try to differentiate between what I know and what I suspect. I know that's a fact that they were doing deliverance because it's recorded for us in historians' writings. I don't know how they did it, but I suspect that they did it through ritual. That is very typical of religion, ceremony, ritual. That's probably how they did it, okay? But you find the first time, by the way, Jesus testifies to these Jewish exorcists doing deliverance ministry and being successful. We'll look at a passage on that later on. There's also a famous story in the book of Acts about a Jewish exorcist team who runs into a little problem in the book of Ephesus or in the story of Ephesus. Um, for us, though, the story begins in the Bible with Jesus doing deliverance ministry. The most famous deliverance Jesus does would be the Gadarene demoniac, Mark chapter 5. You will notice a couple things about this guy. Number one, he's a man of violence. Anybody notice an increase in random acts of violence in our society? Can I just suggest, with an increase in demonization, there will be an increase in violent behavior because Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. You'll also notice he's a cutter. He's cutting himself with stones. Anybody notice an increase in self-harm, suicide rates, and cutting in this generation more than any other? That is because when you have demonization, they will try to get you to harm yourself and others. It's the nature of demons. The disciples do deliverance ministry. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives them authority. He sends them out, do deliverance. We know they have success because even beyond the 12, he sends out the 72 in Luke chapter 10, and they come back and say, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus tells them not to rejoice in that, but rather that their names are written in heaven. And John called the church to test for the spirits, 1 John chapter 4. So I just think this is something we ought to do. Listen, a demon is really just a fallen angelic being. It's really what it is. So they're these supernatural beings, celestial beings that God created, and they have rebelled against God. At this point, the Bible makes clear that there's absolutely nothing redeemable left in them. They are only evil all the time. They will never repent. So they have no goodness left in them because their rebellion was complete. That is not like humans. Humans have a mix we're still image bearers and carry some of the goodness, and yet we're also fallen and cannot save ourselves and cannot stop ourselves from sinning. We are sinners in need of a Savior, but we still have the image of God in us. There's redeemable aspects to humans all the time. This is not true of these beings. They cannot be saved. They cannot be redeemed. They are rebellious, evil creatures who seek to kill, steal, and destroy. They want to, more than anything else, indwell people. And again, Jesus will testify to that point later on in the passage that we read. But this is what they want to do. They want to inhabit you. The reason they want to inhabit people, as far as I can tell, is because they hate your guts. 
The reason they despise people, I think, here we are in the suspicion category again, I cannot substantiate it biblically, but it is my suspicion after doing years and years of this ministry, I suspect they are jealous of us because we have the heart of God as image bearers. And that really ticked them off. And so they rebelled against God and became enemies with us. You need to understand they're not really the enemy of God. God could wipe them out in a singular word. Their real enmity is with you. You are their target. They understand they can't overthrow God. The demons shuddered at Jesus. They knew they were not a threat to Jesus and to God. Their threat is to you, and that's their goal. The big question that people always want to ask when it comes to this stuff is, can Christians have demons? So let me answer the question, then I'll do some reasons why I believe what I believe. So first, can Christians have demons? Yes. Let me answer it a little clearer. Absolutely. Just to be super clear, definitely. It's amazing how often I do one of these and afterwards, you know, someone will ask, are you saying Christians can have demons? Yes. Now, can we clear up terminology? That's a good place to begin. One of the problems we have, once again, is with translation work here. So, the actual Greek word for describing um, demons indwelling people is demonization. That's the Greek word. The way we have translated that word is demon possession in all of our English Bibles. I've never seen an exception to it. That's a terrible translation. You see, because in English, the word possession implies ownership. But that's not actually what's implied by the Greek word. The Greek word implies inhabitation, indwelling. But I can have someone who's in my house who doesn't own my house. It's still my house. I've had people live with me. They are inhabitants. They are not possessors. That's not true. I am the owner. In this case, listen, I would argue that even non-Christians cannot be possessed by demons. Why? Because they're owned by God. You were created in the image of God. When God is the creator, he has ownership rights to you. I am the owner of eight books. It is called Intellectual Copyright Laws. And I have intellectual copyright laws to those eight books. I've literally had people do stuff completely and entirely violating copyright laws. Like take huge sections of my book and condense it and use it in their church ministries. Complete violation of copyright law. I could take them to court over that if I wanted to. And, you know, I've had people translate it into other languages without permission. It's a violation of copyright. Why? Because I'm the owner. Because I created it. Thus, with God, He's the creator. He's your owner. Now, as a believer, you're twice owned. Not only were you owned by creator rights, you're owned by redeemer rights. He bought you with His blood. Possession is not the Greek word, nor is it even in question. Then what we do as Christians, because of that messy word, we talk about oppression versus possession. Please hear me. Those are English words that are not found in the scriptures. It's completely not biblical. 
okay? The word in Greek that we're translating is demonization. The only time that word is ever used in the Greek, there's an indwelling demonic spirit, and it needs to be cast out. The word for cast out in Greek is ekbalo, and literally is translated properly to cast out, because it's in. That is the Greek on this stuff, okay? So word here is a problematic translation. I want you to think with me logically for a second as we're talking about this question. When you came to faith in Christ, did Jesus take away all of your struggles with sin? Let me help you. First John chapter 1. If you say you have no sin, John says, you're a liar. And you call God a liar. Pretty clear we still have sin. When you came to faith in Christ, did Jesus take away all your brokenness, wounding, and dysfunction? Not really. Now hear me for a second. You are saved. That means you have victory over this stuff. But remember, you are being saved. That section of life we are living right now is where we need to be being saved. That section of life means we need to appropriate all of the victories of Jesus in our life. That's how we overcome sin. By appropriating the victory of Jesus. That's how we overcome dysfunction. By appropriating the victory of Jesus. Why is it then that we believe when you come to faith in Christ, the demons leave? That's not how he deals with your sin. It's not how he deals with your brokenness. And in every other discipleship category, what he does is give you victory. Now you must appropriate that victory. It doesn't automatically take away your problems. And it's true for this as well. That's not how it works, okay? Let me give you a bunch of other reasons why I believe this stuff. When you read the New Testament, you'll recognize that there aren't any Christians in the Gospels. What you have are two categories of people, covenant people and non-covenant people. The covenant people are the only people Jesus does deliverance with, okay? They are made up of two groups, Jews, who are born into the covenant in this case. And then there are also Gentiles, who to use Paul's words later on, are grafted into the covenant. The Gentiles and the Jews all have one thing in common who are truly covenant people. They have faith. That's what they have in common. They're looking to God. They have faith, okay? Jesus never goes into pagan villages, does deliverance on people who are demonized, who show no faith. That's never what Jesus does. The only people Jesus ever does deliverance on are either Jewish people who are people of the covenant and demonstrate faith, or two times, Gentile people who both demonstrate great faith. The one time is the Syrophoenician woman who comes on behalf of her daughter, and she ends up in a conversation with Jesus where he grants her desire to get her daughter free and says to her, woman, you have great faith. One of only two times Jesus uses that expression. The other time that Jesus does a deliverance on a Gentile is the Gadarene demoniac. That guy runs to Jesus. I'm just going to tell you, demons do not run to Jesus. That is the man's will. That man felt the power coming off of Jesus. Literally, the demon shuddered in him. I guarantee it. I've seen it happen so many times. 
And they ran to Jesus. He ran to Jesus to get freedom from these demonic beings that had terrorized him his entire life. You'll notice also at the end of that deliverance, he says to Jesus, please, sir, let me go with you. He wants to follow Jesus, which is a clear demonstration of faith. So Jesus does deliverance with people of faith. John, the apostle, tells us to test the spirits. First John chapter 4. He's not writing this letter for the church to test the spirits in their pagan neighbors. He's writing to the church a letter of discipleship. And he's calling them to test the spirits in the church. That's what he's saying. He's not the only one who says this kind of stuff. Paul does this too. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is writing from 1 Corinthians 12 through 1 Corinthians 14, the largest New Testament teaching on the prophetic. That is the focus of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He's really focused on that particular revelatory gift set. And there's a whole bunch of them underneath this prophetic category, discernment, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. They're all prophetic gifting, even healings. Every single one of these gives a revelation of God. That's what they have in common, okay? In the midst of this revelatory talk, he writes this. I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit, that's a revelation received that you're now relaying to someone, okay? No one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now just pause for a second. Why in the world would he write this? Why does he write to a group of church people that no one can utter by the Holy Spirit's revelation the phrase, Jesus be cursed? Why would he say that? Because Paul's a really smart guy. And Paul understood what was happening with the conversion of the pagan peoples. What was happening with the conversion of the pagan peoples is that they were accepting Jesus and adding Jesus to their plethora of deities. Now, how do I know that? Because I read the Bible. It's a good book. You really should read it. <laughs> Think with me about the church in Ephesus, Acts you know, 19, 20, this story that you find there. The church at Ephesus, they worshiped 50 different deities. The chief deity in Ephesus was Artemis of the Ephesians, also known as Diana, right? It's the Diana cultus. They worshiped these 50 different deities. Do you know what they called Diana? Lord and Savior. That sound at all familiar to you? Same thing Paul proclaims about Jesus. He comes to town. He's proclaiming Jesus is Lord and Savior. They have 50 deities. They are a pluralistic, syncretistic society. Have no problem adding to their plethora of deities. So they're like, oh, Jesus, he can help us too. Let's throw him in. Add Jesus to their Lord and Savior mix. How do I know this? Because in the book of Acts, after the seven sons of Sceva incident, where the Jewish exorcists are trying to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, and the demons jump on him, remember? One guy beats the crud out of seven guys, and they run down the street naked, bloodied, and battered, which is a little humorous, actually, but that's not why he told the story. It was the results. After that happens, two results, Luke records. Number one, the believers, well, let's start with the non-believers. The non-believers had awe 
at the name of Jesus. They started to revere, Luke says, Jesus. They went, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus isn't just like everyone else. Even the rest of the deities recognize Jesus. But the second thing Luke says happened was the believers. Luke only ever uses that word for Christians. The believers took all of the magic scrolls that they had been practicing in secret and they burned them. The day they burned all their magic scrolls, they burned 50,000 days wages worth of magic scrolls. New York City money, that's about 12 to 15 million dollars in modern money. They burned an entire library full of occult books that they had still been practicing in secret. They had not yet gone all in for Jesus, but when that seven sons of Sceva incident happened, they went, oh no, Jesus is really the true Lord. This Paul understood. Paul knew that these pagans were adding Jesus to their pile of deities. Paul knew that the discipleship process would include getting them to break all previous association to these other DDTs and include deliverance. Paul knew that. And that's why Paul says, you've got to test this stuff because not every revelation coming in your church service is from God. If demons were, in fact, cast out upon conversion, then Jesus and the disciples never would have done deliverance. They just would have converted people. Church history. Whenever you're creating theology, and that's what we're doing, you need to look at Scripture, which we've been doing, but you also have to look at history. Listen, at the end of the day, you have to look at history because if you create a theology in the 21st century that no one else in the history of the church has ever had, it's wrong. There's a lot of smart people that have gone before us. We're not creating new theology. Let's take a look at church history. I'm just going to give you a bunch of names and dates, and you can look up it on the board there. But you look at how early these guys are. Justin Martyr, Tatian, Tertullian, Origen, Hermas, and a host of others testify to deliverance ministry being done in the church on believers as part of discipleship. That was how the early church looked at this. There was a guy who wrote a book around 200 AD. His name was Hippolytus. His book is in fragments still. You can't see everything in it, but you can read it. It's online. You can get it for free. I've read it a couple times. He wrote a book called The Apostolic Tradition. In the book, The Apostolic Tradition, he talks about how they did the ministry of exorcism, as he calls it. He says the way they did the ministry of exorcism was a new person would come to faith in Christ out of paganism. This is where they're being converted at this point. The very first thing they would do is teach them monotheism. Got to worship Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The rest of these are demonic. Then the second thing that they would do was they would teach them how to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that included a lot of repentance, obviously. And then the third thing they would do was their exorcism. Prayers of exorcism. And they would do this as part of their baptism rites. Then, after they did those three steps, they would lead them into the waters of baptism. 
They would have them renounce all previous association to other deities, proclaim their total allegiance to Jesus, and dip them under the water, bring them back up, and pray one last sealing prayer of exorcism over them. The early church did deliverance ministry as part of discipleship. That was how they viewed it. There's a guy who was Clement's follower. We don't know his real name. We picked up some of his stuff, so we just call him Pseudo-Clement in history. But he wrote a book called Recognitions. And in that book, he writes this. Everyone who has at any time worshipped idols and has adored those the pagans call gods or has eaten of the things sacrificed to them is not without an unclean spirit. Here's what the early church fathers believed. If you worship other deities, you pick up demonic beings and you need deliverance. That's what they believed. There was another guy who wrote a book called The Apostolic Constitutions. It was written in about 300 AD and it was a collection of church practices from Syria. So how did the early church take the teachings of the apostles and live them out? In this case, the region it was focused on was Syria. And he wrote this, if anyone has a demon, let him indeed be taught piety. These are Christians. Let's teach them how to walk in step with the Holy Spirit, but not be received into communion before he be cleansed. So for them, the first order of this is when we do deliverance is the first communion. So the other place there, they were looking at Hippolytus at baptism as the place where we made sure we delivered all the new believers. But in this case, they used the first communion as the cutoff. My favorite quote comes from this book. He writes, if anyone has a demon, let him not be made one of the clergy. <laughs> Over the last 10 years, I have delivered thousands of clergy. Because our Western worldview has blinded us to biblical realities. Listen, I want to take a look at a passage with you. I don't have it up on the screen, so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. I want to look at a teaching of Jesus where I think he brings some clarity to this stuff. I think it's pretty brilliant of Jesus. I want to look at Luke 11, beginning of verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Can I just pause? A mute guy speaks after you do a deliverance, and they want a sign from heaven? The proof of the validity of deliverance ministry is in the life change. I, as a member of the Christian Missionary Alliance, have had four 30-page papers written against me um, because of my ministry in deliverance, trying to get me excommunicated, uh, 
tried to get me into heresy trials. I do stand on fairly solid ground for those of you who are part of the CMA. This has been part of the ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance since our very beginning. A.B. Simpson, our founder, wrote two articles in the Alliance Life, whatever they called it back then, about doing deliverance on a believer as part of discipleship. It goes back to A.B. Simpson. We have had throughout our years in schools, the Missionary Training Institute, then Nyack College, ATS, etc., all the way through our history, we have had a class that taught deliverance ministries. I was the teacher of the last classes on this subject. We have since called it Power Encounter over the years. But this has been taught for missionaries and pastors if they wanted to take it since the very inauguration of the Christian Missionary Alliance. It's been part of our DNA. And yet, because of the Western worldview, I've had four 30-page papers written against me trying to get me excommunicated. I responded to one of them because my dean asked me to. He sent me an email and said, you have 30 days to respond to this. If you don't respond, I'm going to send it to your district superintendent. And if he doesn't do anything about it, I'm going to send it to the president of the denomination to have you removed. And I sent it to my district superintendent. Figured there was no point waiting. I sent it to the president of the denomination. And I sent it to my dean because I figured he would hear about it as well. Who's also a good friend of mine, Ron Walborn. Ron wrote back to me and said to me, would you please respond to this? I said, really? Do I have to? He's like, please do it for me. I said, okay. I said, you know it's going to be a waste of time. But I will do it for you because I love you. So I wrote to the guy and said, okay, let's have a conversation. So we started the conversation. I just said very simply, and I meant it very sincerely. I said, listen, we both love Jesus and we want Jesus to be glorified, I would be very happy to end the conversation right there and just say, let's agree on the big thing and let's ignore the secondary issues. This isn't really worth dividing over. You don't have to agree with me. I said, I wrote a 275 book on it, page book on it. You're never going to convince me. You have no idea what I've seen. And I don't really care to convince you. If you want to be convinced of your opinion, that's fine. I don't care. But I don't need to be on the phone, so I'm happy just to agree to disagree. He said, I can't agree to disagree. You're a heretic. Okay, here we go. So I said to him, um, he told me that he went to a soul care conference to oppose me and prove that I was wrong. So I said to him, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, did you know anyone there who came to the conference who went through deliverance? He said, I did. I said, did you follow up with them? He said, I did. I said, did they experience life change? He said, they did. I said, how do you explain that? He said, I think they repented. I said, had they ever repented before? He said, they had. I said, why did it take this time? He said, I don't know. I said, could it be that your worldview is keeping you from seeing the plain realities of what happened? They had demons, they got delivered, and that's why their life has changed. No, that can't be right, you're wrong, you're a heretic. A mute guy speaks, and they want a sign from heaven. Be careful. I said to you this week, be careful what you resist, you'll find yourself fighting the Holy Spirit. Please talk to the people who've experienced deliverance. I'm gonna ask you to do something if you're in the room, you've experienced deliverance and it changed your life. Would you just raise your hand? 
Talk to them. Listen to their story. Jesus did this stuff because it was necessary. Pick up the story in verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? I told you Jesus would testify to Jewish exorcists being successful in deliverance ministries. Here it is. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, oh, he said, so they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I think the difference between Jesus doing deliverance and the Jewish exorcist doing deliverance was in methodology. The Jewish exorcist did deliverance ministry, I think, again, suspicion, no historical documentation. I think they probably did it with ritual and ceremony, but Jesus did it with authority. He commanded and things moved out. And that's the difference, see. And that's what he means by if I drive them out by the finger of God. And notice he makes a direct connection between driving out demons and the kingdom of God coming. As I said to you, this is part of the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, demons flee. This is part of what he said. And now in verse 21, he tells a parable which is illustrating how he does it with authority. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house. If I'm an underliner in my Bible, I want to underline the word house because it's the key phrase that threads the passage together. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. The strong man in the parable is Satan. The stronger one who attacks and overpowers him is Jesus. What Jesus is saying is the reason he can cast out demons is because he's stronger than Satan. That's why he can speak a word and they leave, because he's the stronger one. The house is the person who is demonized. And the possessions of Satan are the demons. And when Jesus comes, he kicks out the demons because he's stronger than Satan. Verse 23 actually appeals to those resisting. And he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. He's actually calling them to repent, getting back into alignment with him. Verse 24 is not a parable. He's just describing spiritual reality. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house that I left. That's the person. It just came out of the person. It's going back to the person. That's the thread there, the verb, the word that he's using to thread the passage. When it arrives, it finds the house slept, swept clean and put in order. In other words, the person is delivered. Then it goes, takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and together they go and live there, and the final condition of the person's worse than the first. Listen, here's what I think Jesus is arguing. I think Jesus is arguing if he does not come into the deliverance and indwell the person, they are not safe from reinfestation. I believe Jesus is arguing deliverance ministry needs to be done as part of discipleship and not done on non-believers because non-believers are not safe and protected 
from the enemy's reinfestation. This is why I think we need to do deliverance ministry with believers. All right, so let's answer a couple of key questions. We answered the question, you know, can Christians be demonized? Now let's talk about how do demons enter people? Why are people demonized? How do they get in? You ready? The big answer, of course, is the word sin. Demons enter because of sin. That's the big answer. But let me explain what I mean by what I don't mean, because, you know, I don't want to create fear and superstition. So, listen, this is not what I mean. I don't mean today you're having a bad day, you drive out of here, somebody cuts you off, you give them the universal sign of disapproval, and now you got a demon, which I'm just going to say is a good thing given the way some of you drive. I don't mean that. God's grace is much greater than your sin. I don't mean that. I don't mean you're trying to walk with the Spirit and you take a step forward and then you fall down and then you get up and you're honest and you're confessional and then you fall down and you get up and you're honest, confessional and you fall down. Please hear me, that's normal. We're all struggling to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The being saved part. We're all struggling with that. We all keep sinning. God's grace is greater than your sin. What I do mean, there is a difference between I'm struggling and I'm living in rebellion. Rebellion is very different. Rebellion, as we quoted the other day from the prophet Samuel to the king Saul, first king of Israel, is as the sin of witchcraft. Oh, see. There's a difference between I'm getting up, falling down, and I am living in rebellion against God. That's a big difference. Rebellion is, I know it's wrong, I don't care, I'm going my own way. And when you live in rebellion in any area of life, anger, bitterness, hatred, and, and you know, can be pornography, can be sexual immorality, etc., etc. When you live in rebellion, addiction, you can pick up demons. And so that kind of pattern, especially when it's faced a family for generations. The chances of demons entering a family with generational rebellion is super strong. And sometimes the sin is as simple as fear. We become super core fear-based people. And with religious people, that's really common. And fear and anxiety has flooded our families because we've allowed fear to rule. We haven't figured out authentic faith. And then sometimes that becomes a problem for entrance of spirits. Um, so sometimes they enter because of sin like that. And then there's just certain types of sin that when you enter into those, you're more likely to get demons. So let me give the big ones. First, occult activity. You worship any other deity, you're going to get a demon. Why? Because you're worshiping that thing. You are giving that thing full access. You are inviting it into your life. And if you invite a demon into your life, I just want you to know, they always say yes. I know Christians who come to these conferences all the time, all over the world, and they tell me they went to Reiki and experienced healing, even though they're Christians. And they had demons. Why? Because they invited that thing in. Okay? 
And then, besides occult activity, sometimes when we're involved in sexual sin, there is some way, and I don't understand it, but there is some way that demons can be transferred in sexual activity outside of marriage. And if you ask me how, I don't really know. But I'm telling you, that's why Paul sort of singles out sexual sin in multiple places as a different category of sin. It's not because it's worse. It's because it can lead to spiritual problems. Listen, God's system is one man, one woman for life in a covenantal relationship called marriage. That is not because God is a prude. That is because God is a covenantally faithful God and He wants us to exemplify that in our relationship with one another. So we represent Him well. As long as you're living in marriage in a covenantal relationship with a partner, you are living not just safe sex, but safe spirituality. But when you step out in rebellion, out of that covenantal relationship, outside the boundary of marriage, you do open yourself up to the possibility of demonization. Now, there are certain types that seem to be 100%. So, for example, sometimes people are engaged in prostitution. Sometimes, sadly, they were forced into it because they were trafficked. Even though they were forced into it and it's not fair, they're still going to have demons. I know no exception to that. I've delivered over 500 prostitutes in my lifetime, and there's never been one that didn't have demons. And at the end of the day, when you cross that line into prostitution where you're selling sex for something, exchanging sex for money, exchanging sex for power, exchanging sex for drugs. That's prostitution. When you cross that line, demons are invited in. And I've never seen an exception. Most people that I have done deliverance on out of prostitution were not street walkers or high-class escorts, though I have done those as well. Most of them simply had a drug habit as a kid, 19, 20, and exchanged used sex to gain drugs. But I gotta tell you, in the spiritual realm, that's an entry point. And so, that one I see 100%. I've never seen where it didn't lead to demonization. Serial adultery. I gotta say, in most cases where someone has lived or a family has lived a pattern of serial adultery, multiple adulterous relationships outside the boundaries of marriage, there are usually the vast majority of times there's going to be demonization. That's a rebellious behavior with sexual implications and there's usually demonization with that. Promiscuity, let's talk about this openly. Um, with promiscuity, I mean, there is a probability equation going on. If it is true that demons can be transferred through sex, which in my experience is 100% true, that it can happen, the more sexual partners you have, the more likely the transference will occur. It's a probability equation. So if you have 100 sexual partners, the chances of you picking up demons through some of that activity is very strong. Again, 
one man, one woman, for life, and a covenant of marriage, you're protected. Step outside of that, though, you're not protected anymore. And so that can lead to demonization. That's not 100%, but it does happen. Sadly, sometimes what we end up with is abuse. And, you know, again, you're the victim of someone's sexual abuse. But I'm going to tell you something that I have found. And that is that when there's penetration with a finger, a tongue, an object, a penis, when there's penetration, there, in my experience, is always demonization. I have not found exceptions to that. When there's not penetration but fondling, there's often, I would even suggest, usually demonization, but not always demonization. So here's the reality of what happens when you have someone who is, for example, a rapist, and a rapist um, abuses someone in a sexual violation of violence, that rapist, sadly, infuses, imparts the demons he has to that person. And that's where those transferences occur. And then that person who's been the victim of rape needs deliverance. That's very, very common. Um, let me um, see one last thing that we'll do just before lunch and our, our first morning break. And um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the symptoms of demonic infestation. And we'll close with this for break. So let me give you the big symptoms. How do you know if you have demons? What are the symptoms of demons indwelling us? I want to tell you the number one symptom is anxiety. That is the number one symptom. I also want to say not everyone who has anxiety has demons. Some of you have anxiety because your identity is a little squishy, not too solid. And when that happens, you can have anxiety that's connected to your performance or people-pleasing, and it has nothing to do with demons. Some of you have anxiety because of other issues going on. And, you know, there's a ton of reasons why people can have anxiety. However, what I'm telling you is, when a demon is present, often there is anxiety rumbling through the soul. It's very, very common. And that is one of the most common symptoms. Also, sometimes these people will struggle with rage or anger. In this case, you know, um, it feels like supernaturally empowered even, you know. Um, the Gadarene demoniac. I mean, we're looking at a person with a pretty strong level of rage and he's a man of violence. This happens to people. And for some of you with this, there's even, you know, like thoughts that come to your head that you've never acted on, but they come into your head and they're homicidal or violent. Some of you actually see at times body parts mangled or, you know, separated body parts. And you're getting dreams or images like this, which has driven you a little bit like, oh, but it's common with people with these kinds of violent, rage-oriented spirits. Some people who have demons also would say they hear voices. Now, for some people who hear voices, there is mental illness. But I have to tell you, there are many people who hear voices who do have demons. 
And, you know, they actually hear the demonic spirit speaking to them. Many people, they wouldn't say they have voices, like audible voices, but it more is like they have thoughts that are in their head that are not their own, and they can't shut it down. They don't have to give in to the thoughts. Again, you have a degree of sovereignty because you're created in the image of God. But it's like you can't shut them off. You know what it's like? It's like a drippy faucet. And, you know, you try to do what James said, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. And you submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and you can overcome the temptation or thought that's coming into your brain, but it, like, keeps coming. Drip, 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 like a leaky faucet. Drip, drip. Sometimes the thoughts that you keep having are blasphemous thoughts. Even in sacred spaces like Bible reading or praying, sometimes the thoughts you have are condemning thoughts. Like, you are a lousy person. You're a terrible Christian. You call yourself a Christian. Look at what you do. And it's actually a lot of times just what I said. Third person, you are a lousy Christian, right? Somebody's saying it to you, right? A third person party speaking to you like that. And um, sometimes you get those kinds of thoughts, those intrusive thoughts that don't shut down. And um, sometimes the thoughts are sexual and even in sacred spaces, again, Bible reading, prayer, church, worship, and you're getting these sexual thoughts and images um, that happens to people with demonic beings dwelling within. Um, sometimes the thoughts are suicidal. And it's not like you're having thoughts like you had a really bad year and you think, man, I wish I was never born. That's normal. Anybody who's going through a horrible year in life is going to think, man, let's skip to the end and go to heaven. And that's a normal thought process for humans, okay? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you're having a good day. You're driving down the street. You're listening to your version of cool music, whatever you think that is. <laughs> and as you're driving down the street, you're listening to this music. All of a sudden, you have a random thought. I should drive into a tree. I should drive off a bridge. And some of you have lived with that your whole life. That's not normal. I did a conference in Bakersfield, California a few years back. I guess I did it before COVID, but then I was back there after COVID 2021 or two. When I came back, this woman comes up to me right before this conference started and she sits next to me on the front row and she says to me, I know you must get tired of these stories. I said to her, they never get tired. She said to me, you know, I've wrestled with depression my whole life. She said, I have to tell you, she said, I've struggled with suicidal ideation since I was four years old. She was in her 60s. She said, every single day of my life, I've contemplated suicide, battled against those thoughts. She said, I have to tell you, every single time I drove across the bridge, I would hold the steering wheel so tight my knuckles would hurt on the other side because I was terrified that I would drive off the bridge. The compulsion was so strong. She said, you did my deliveries in 10 minutes. And I've never had another suicidal thought. For 55 years of her life, she lived in torment because the church has abandoned its post. It is cosmic treason for the church to possess the keys of the kingdom and not to utilize them to set the captives free.
And then sometimes, you know, these people will um, have sexual issues, people who have been sexually abused. I, I want to spend a minute, and then we'll take our break, talking about the symptoms of a sexual abuse spirit. The reason why is because you have to understand that currently in our society, 60% of women, according to the last government survey done in 2021, 60% of women have some level of sexual abuse and 50% of men self-report some level of sexual abuse. And so I want to talk about this because you have to understand that in every room I'm speaking to these days, more than half the crowd has experienced this. This is where we're at. And so I want to talk about this stuff. Let me give you the symptoms. Sometimes what happened is your mother was sexually abused or your father was sexually abused or your grandmother got raped or something like that. And a lot of times, you know, we don't talk about that stuff in families. And you have no idea that that's in your family history, but you're going to have some of these symptoms. Even though you yourself were not sexually abused, and in some of you, you were, but others of you, you still have the symptom because someone above you was. Let me give you an example of this. So one of the common symptoms that people have who someone in a previous generation got sexually abused is that they'll have early, pre-developmentally possible sexual erotic thoughts. I'm talking about like four years old, five years old, six years old. Please hear me. You can't have sexually lustful thoughts developmentally as a six-year-old. That's not possible. That's not developmentally accurate. That is demonic. And I can tell you thousands of stories of people who said to me, I can remember having sexual lustful thoughts at four years old and all the way through life. Here's a second symptom. Sometimes people who have sexual abuse spirits will have sexual thoughts or even pictures during sacred moments, reading their Bible, prayer, worship, and they feel bad. They feel perverted. You're not perverted. You got demons. Sometimes these people, even though they're fighting it, they get these thoughts, right? Sometimes these folks will feel a dark presence in their room at night. It's like you're, you're going to bed. It's almost always in your bedroom. You're going to bed, and you can just feel this like scary, terrifying, dark presence. Very common. It's a sexual abuse spirit often, and they're very intimidating, and they want to bully people. That's what they do. Then sometimes the thing crosses over, and you feel literally what is called sleep paralysis. You, you feel pinned to the bed. And you wake up and you feel like you can't move and you want to scream out a lot of times if you're a Christian, you want to scream out Jesus' name, but you can't speak. It's like he's got your tongue. And it doesn't last long. Usually it lasts like 30 seconds. A couple times it'll last you longer, a minute or two or three, but that's as long as it lasts. And it's just terrifying. And then, you know, when you do deliverance, that stuff all goes away. It never happens again. For some people... The thing that invades their dreams, and they start having really dark sexual dreams. I mean, dreams about, you know, children being inappropriately touched, which you would never want to happen, and yet you're having these dreams, or dreams of incest, where there's two family members not married to each other and engaging in sexual acts, and again, you wake up, you just feel dirty. Sometimes the dreams are rape scenes 
either you're being raped or being chased that someone is trying to rape you or sometimes in the dream, even though you've never engaged in this kind of activity, you're the abuser. Which is a really disturbing dream for people. Either way. Sometimes you'll have these dreams and, you know, there's homosexuality in the dreams. So you are heterosexual and yet you have these dreams and you've had them your whole life sometimes. By the way, it's one of the reasons why I think people think they're born gay. Because if you were four years old and started getting sexual images of males and you're a male, guess what you're going to think? I've always been this way. Instead of judging, we need to set captives free. Some of your dreams, for some of you, have been transgender-oriented. Happens. And these are things that happens with demonic spirits. Sadly, sometimes they cross over one last line and then you wake up in the middle of the night and you feel like someone's having sex with you, but there's no one in the room. Or at least no one's engaged with you if you have a spouse. <clears throat> and they're sleeping next to you, but you're not actually being touched inappropriately by any person. You just start to feel sexual sensations. And that happens to people who have sexual abuse spirits, sometimes you wake up with that and there's also like bruises or scratches across someplace near your privates, you know. And other times, you know, even some people, rarely, but it has happened, I've seen it, where people actually start to feel the sexual touch and tempt, sort of um, uh, experience during the daytime. And they're at work and they're starting to get this. And it happens to people. I just want to say, one, this isn't normal. Two, Jesus has victory for you. And I want you to know that I've delivered thousands and thousands of people in Jesus' name who have had these symptoms and have come back and report to me all of the symptoms that I just spoke of were completely gone after deliverance. Thousands and thousands of people. This week, I did a deliverance on someone, I guess it was last week. She wrote to me and she said to me, for 40 years of my life, I have been trying to find one hour of peace and could not find it. You did my deliverance 10 days ago at the time of the writing, and I have had 10 days of undisturbed peace day and night. For the first time in my life, I feel deeply loved and connected to God. For the last six years of my life, I have laid on a couch for six hours a day after sleeping because I couldn't move. And now I have energy again. This is why we do this ministry. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back in after break. I'm going to talk to you about how to get rid of these things, which is, at this point, really important piece of this conversation. It's 1040. We're coming back in at 1105. That's great. And please hear me for a second. It's really important, okay? Don't talk to me. I have to pee. <laughs> Seriously.